Well, good morning. Please open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. So as we come to the end of the Advent season, really the end of our calendar year, I thought it would be helpful to end on focusing on the Advent and biblical theme of peace. You know, this is the time of year when you get a whole bunch of articles and and reflections on what the last year has provided us. And these types of writings also occur for, for the church as pastors and bloggers reflect on on what the past year has meant to Christians in the church, the joys and the challenges we have faced. And I've seen several articles on blogs this week with a similar theme, and that is this year has been a tumultuous and divisive year for the evangelical church. I think that's for several reasons in, in, in larger societies, just COVID policies, um, vaccination mandates, continued discussions about racism and and critical race theory, and and several other issues. And these have contributed to this being a very difficult year for evangelicals at large, for the church at large, and specifically the division and hostility present in many local congregations. Of course, I've, I've only been in this congregation for a few months, and I would say none of this describes what is happening here among, with us. And coming from a church earlier this year that did face division and an honestly painful turmoil over these issues, it seems clear to me that, that the unity we have here is pretty unique for the times. I'm sure all of us know of churches that have faced unprecedented divisions over the past year. But we know that that the unity and lack of overall division we have at EF has everything to do with with God and God's kindness and God's grace to us as a body. And we should never presume it will last forever. The hostility and division that, that characterizes much of the evangelical world can be here among us. And this is where the biblical theme of peace is so appropriate to focus on this morning. Because what what our congregation needs, what, what every congregation needs for unity and life together is the peace of Christ to rule and reign in our hearts. And here's the big the big point I want us to see today. Peace with God, peace with God through Christ which is what we celebrate in Christmas, that Jesus has has come as a baby to bring peace between man and God to reconcile us, that truth, our peace with God through Christ, must lead us to peace with each other in the body of Christ. And in our text this morning, in Colossians 3, We get a sort of blueprint of what our life together as the body of Christ should look like. As those redeemed and made right with God to participate in his new creation community, the church. We get direct application then from the Apostle Paul himself of what needs to occur in the body of Christ, in this local body of Christ. We must be governed 
by the peace of Christ. So if you are able, please stand with me as we read Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 17. The Apostle Paul writes, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, which with, thank, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. This is the word of the Lord. In Colossians 3, Paul shifts his argument of the first two chapters, which centered on a, a high Christology and an emphasis on what, what Christ's death and resurrection has accomplished for his people. And in chapter 3, Paul shifts to focus on Christians' new identity in Christ as we have died with and been raised with Him. We are now united with Christ. This is essentially Paul's main point in verses 1 through 4 of chapter 3. We have a, a new identity in Christ. We have a new perspective. We have a, a fundamentally new mindset as a result of believing in the gospel message of Christ. And verses 5 through 11 of chapter 3 deal mainly with, a, with the negative commands or things we must rid our lives of, the characteristics we must throw off as those in Christ. Right? Paul says we must put to death and rid ourselves of sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, covetousness, idolatry, anger, wrath, Malice, slander, obscene talk, and lying. We have to rid all of those from our lives. Because the wrath of God is coming to judge such things. So they must not characterize the life, our new life, in Christ. And in verse 10, Paul affirms that not only must we put off things, that characterize our old self without Christ, but we also must actively put on a new self, the new self. So in our verses this morning, Paul writes positively of the attributes and attitudes that should characterize, that should typify the new self, our, our redeemed, born-again state in Christ. Um, one more thing regarding the, the context of these verses is that Paul here is talking about characteristics of the new self primarily that are applied in the body of Christ. This will hopefully become very apparent as we work through the text. 
Um, but just know up front that Paul has in mind the characteristics and the, the attitudes that are fitting of the new self, of, of new life in Christ, that are necessary for life in local congregations, in local churches. Paul never intends a meaning that being called to a new self occurs in isolation, in isolation from other Christians. It is an inherent communal calling to be called into the new self. So we're going to spend our time under the the main heading, or, or really the main question of the text, and that is, what is necessary What is necessary for life in the body of Christ? Or what does life in the body, life in the church, need to be characterized by? And the answer Paul gives to that question will be our three main points. So first, we will see that life in the body needs to be characterized by a display of Christ's attributes, which we'll see in verse 12. Second, we'll see that life... And the body needs to be characterized by bearing and forgiving each other, which we'll see in verse 13 and 14. And finally, we'll see life in the body needs to be characterized by the peace and word of Christ being central to everything we do. So a display of Christ's attributes among us, bearing and forgiving each other, and the peace and word of Christ being central to everything we do. So first, a display of Christ's attributes. Read with me in verse 12. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. So notice Paul gives a command here to to put on the new self. This this connects, again, with the previous verses of of killing or or putting off what is earthly in us, what belongs to to the old self. And in place, we must put on the new self. Paul is using clothing imagery here. We need to put on, like, like putting on different articles of clothing, Notice that that Paul says we should put on this new self as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. These are very important words, and they're they're typically, they're used in the Old Testament scriptures to refer to Israel, God's old covenant people. Look at with me in Deuteronomy 7. going to read verses 6 through 8. Just notice these same words that that Moses is writing about Israel. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So Moses here clearly calls Israel, God's old covenant people, right, holy, chosen ones, 
and loved or, or beloved. This is the common description of God's covenant people. So what Paul is doing, and this is very important, it's what he's done throughout this letter, is he's connecting the redemption we have in Christ with the redemption of the old covenant community. So that those that put their faith in Christ are elected, are chosen by God, made holy before him, and are loved by him in a covenant relationship. This is a common way for, for other New Testament authors to write, such as Peter and, and 1 Peter 2, verses 9 through 10, where Peter says, There the people of God are a, a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. So God has, like, like with Israel in the Old Testament, and the Old Covenant, He has made us, those with faith in Christ, into a covenant community, a new covenant that now consists of both Jew and Gentile, consists of anyone who, who places their faith in Christ and is regenerated by His Spirit. And this new covenant community is what we call the church. And this is what Paul is indicating by those three words in verse 12. Chosen ones, holy and beloved. So another way we can understand verse 12 then is by saying, put on then as God's new covenant community. Put on then as, as the church. Paul then lists five attributes that we should put on, that should characterize our life, and specifically our life in the body with each other, in the church. And in keeping with the Christ-centered theme of the letter, Paul clearly lists five attributes that are explicitly attributed to the Lord Jesus in the Gospels. So in, this, in that sense, these, these attributes are Christ-like. We are in the body, as the new covenant community, we must reflect the character, the attributes of Christ. And the result of these characteristics, being present in our life, is that it will, it will foster a strong, united body of Christ. So what are these attributes? What are these attributes? First, notice we must have compassionate hearts. G.K. Beale helpfully describes that this term generally or pretty much always means a concern about someone else's bad circumstances. So when our brothers or sisters are facing difficult, hard circumstances in life, we must, as Christ's people, have genuine concern for their circumstances. We must have compassion in our hearts for them. Second, we must put on kindness. The word kindness implies a physical action, usually in, in gracious acts towards others. So think of um, serving others in the body, doing tasks for them, blessing others physically. That's what it means to, to put on kindness. Third, Paul says we must put on humility. 
humility. Of course, Christ is key here, as we just read in Philippians 2. We see that Christ, in, in all humility, came to earth and didn't look to his own interests, but to the interests of others. This is now our call as being in Christ. We must put the interest and needs of others before our own. This is what it, it means to be humble. We need to have true humility like the Lord Jesus. Fourth, we must put on meekness. This is also sometimes translated gentleness. This is the same word Jesus uses of himself in Matthew eleven twenty nine, where he says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle, or I am meek and lowly in heart. The term meek is, I think, very closely related um, to the previous attribute of humility. One Greek lexicon says meekness is the quality of not being overly impressed by a sense of one's self-importance. The idea is that meekness or, or gentleness is when someone doesn't think they are as or more important than others. You see how it's closely connected to humility. And the final attribute of Christ we must put on is patience. Being patient is being forbearing in the face of provocation. In other words, it's not quickly losing your temper or getting agitated with others, even when they aren't necessarily acting in the best ways, which in the church, you know, is, is full of sinful people. So in the church, we are going to encounter people and, and situations that will test our patience, I'm sure as we can all attest. And the call here is we must put on the patience of Christ as we interact with each other who is so patient with us as we stumble and fall in our sin. So I hope it is clear how all of these attributes that we must put on, these attributes of Christ, have direct application with how we interact with each other as a body. Paul is painting a general picture here of what each member of Christ's new covenant community, the church, what each member of the church should look like. And so let me just ask you, as you take account of your life here in, in the body, in this body, are, are these attributes, are these characteristics, characteristic of your life in the body? And remember, your, your believing spouse is also a member of this body. This gets to our most personal of relationships. Are you compassionate of others' difficult circumstances? Are you acting graciously, being kind to others? Are you humble and, and meek, putting the needs of others above your own and counting others as more significant than yourself? Are you patient with other members in the body? You know, I know the answer for me is not yes to all of these, especially all of the time. 
We all struggle in the flesh and the old self to live like Christ. But as Paul calls us in this passage, Christian, we must put on these attributes as his church. So make it a habit to to pray for these characteristics, to pray for these attributes, to, to become characteristic in your life, to be characteristic of every member in this body. This is a wonderful thing to pray for the brothers and sisters here. Verse 13 shows how these these five virtues in verse 12 function in practical action in the body of Christ, which leads to our second point, that life in the body needs to be characterized by bearing with and forgiving each other, by bearing with and forgiving each other. So first in verse 13, Paul says we need to bear with one another. This verb to bear with denotes the idea of a willingness to put up with difficult circumstances or to put up with difficult people. And it's presented here positively. We can hear that and it sounds negative, put up with, but it's a positive characteristic. And so the attributes listed in verse 12 function practically in the life of the body when we are bearing with one another. One of the many things I love about the Bible is that it is absolutely realistic. It is not just pie-in-the-sky ethics. You see, Paul here recognizes that life in the body with, with different people from different social statuses, different backgrounds, different cultures are going to have differences, and sometimes big differences. And sometimes those differences lead to difficult situations or circumstances in the life of the body. We all don't see everything the same way. In fact, that is what much division in local churches stems from. And instead of bearing with each other's differences or having the willingness to put up with people that are different than you and think differently than you, slowly but surely we begin to distrust people in the body, our brothers and sisters. We we begin to become suspicious of their motives. And friends, this is fatal to the unity of the body. Now, it's clear that Paul's not talking about bearing with anything or or anyone at all times. He's writing in the context of false teachers that he calls the, the Colossians to completely reject. So we must reject false teaching and false teachers and false professors of the faith from our congregation. That is essential. That isn't what Paul is speaking on here. He is saying those that are blood-bought, children of God, fellow citizens and members of the New Covenant community that are members of Christ's body, those that are chosen, holy, and beloved, we must bear with them in our differences. So to get real practical here, if someone in this congregation has a view of face masks, and vaccines that truly baffles you, that you just cannot comprehend, that you find baffling, bearing with that person means you, you willingly, joyfully put up with them. You, you willingly choose to be in fellowship with that person, despite their, their differing views. 
And you don't do so begrudgingly, talking behind their back about where they're wrong. And this has ramifications for all of us well beyond COVID policies. Maybe it's someone's personality you, you just you don't like. You get annoyed by them. And that is going to happen in a congregation this size, which honestly might be a sign of health in the congregation that God is bringing people here that are not exactly like you. Or maybe you're in a care group with someone you, you would just never choose to hang out with if it was up to you. You must bear with that person. And to do that, you must exude the, the attributes and characteristics of Christ that Paul laid out here. It is the only way. You must be gentle, compassionate, patient, kind, and humble. And in my own experience, some of the greatest growth I've had in my spiritual life has come when I fellowshiped with fellow members of the covenant community that I would never choose to be around if it was my own choice. I think this is the beauty of, and of the diversity of God's redemptive community. And bearing with each other in our differences is necessary for the flourishing and the unity of the body of Christ. Paul goes on to say that if anyone has a complaint against another, they must forgive each other as the Lord has forgiven us. So notice at the end of verse 10 that this is not an option for Paul. He is commanding that Christians must forgive. In some sense, this may be the fundamental mark of the Christian life forgiving others when we have been wronged because forgiveness is fundamental to the gospel. That is the ground for why Paul commands forgiveness in the body of Christ because Christ has forgiven you. That's the only way we can be part of his covenant community. That's the only way we can even be a part of the church. Again, Paul is being very realistic and practical for the young Colossian church. There will be complaints against one another in every local body of believers. In other words, people are going to offend and hurt other people. Even redeemed people in the church can hurt people. And Paul is commanding us, those in Christ, that we must forgive when we've been sinned against. And this is difficult because in our flesh... We don't always want to forgive all the time. It seems unjust. It seems wrong in our thinking. But I would just say again, this is why the five attributes here of Christ that Paul lists is so crucial. Because we need a fundamental disposition of Christ's likeness to be able to forgive when we have been wronged. And this is the mark of the new covenant community forgiving one another when one has a complaint or an offense against another. And let me just say, if you can't forgive, if you can't forgive your brothers and sisters in Christ when you are wronged, it is a sign that something is, is deeply wrong 
in your spiritual life. Because as Paul is saying here, we forgive out of an understanding that we have been forgiven. So our forgiving others really has nothing to do with with his or her response that has offended us. Our forgiveness is rooted in the reality that we have sinned, we have broken God's commands, and yet Christ forgave us. When we utterly did not deserve it. But now we must also forgive when we are offended, even when we perceive that others don't deserve it. So this is another fundamental key aspect of, of the unity of the overall health of a local body of Christ. The Christian community has no place for grudges. It is a place for reconciliation. So if you are presently resenting or, or not forgiving a brother or sister, as Paul says here, you must forgive them as Christ has forgiven you. In verse 14, it's a, it's a little difficult to interpret how it connects to the previous verses, but what Paul is saying is that above all of these attributes of verse 12 and 13, we must put on love. Love which, which binds together everything in perfect harmony. Paul stays with the, the clothing imagery, and love is like the, the overcoat that goes over all the other garments, all the other attributes of Christ. It what, it's what brings the outfit together, so to speak. So love is the, the necessary component to make everything in, in verses 12 through 13 work. And biblical love, friends, is not just some sentimental feeling that we read on a holiday card. We get the great description of biblical love in 1 Corinthians 13. Biblical love is, at its core, sacrificial. Our sacrificial love, then, is key to living compassionate, kind, humble, meek, patient lives that bear with and forgive one another. Love holds all of that together in perfect harmony. It is the, the key ingredient to our life together. So the high calling of Christ-like love, of the, of the sacrificial love we see described in the New Testament, is what we must have characterize our life, what we must have for each other in this body. Verses 15 through 17, Paul gets even more explicit of his concern for the unity and health of the body of Christ. This leads to our, our final point, which is that life in the body needs to be characterized by the peace and word of Christ being central to everything we do. So read with me verses 15 and 16. Paul writes, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts. Paul starts verse 15 with another command that we must let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts. 
The peace of Christ can mean several things. But in the context of this letter, Paul is meaning the peace we have through the cross of Christ. Remember, so remember back in chapter 1, a couple weeks ago, um, the death of Christ, Paul writes, has brought us reconciliation with God, brought us into right relationship from hostility to peace with God. We have peace with God, and that peace with God is only found through faith in Christ. So the idea is that because we Christians have experienced full reconciliation, we've experienced peace with God through Christ, which Paul calls here in verse 15, the peace of Christ, because of that reality in our life, we must let peace rule in our hearts. And the implication is that because of the peace we have with God through the cross, we must now exude peace and reconciliation with fellow Christians in the body. That is what Paul is getting at by saying that peace must rule in your hearts. The word rule can also mean um, arbiter, the, the deciding factor. So think of a, an umpire or referee in sports. They are the rule, the arbiter of what is foul and what is not. What is a ball and what is a strike? They are the deciding factor. Paul is saying the peace of Christ, which necessarily results in peace with each other, that peace must be the rule, must be the deciding factor in our relations with each other. Paul goes on to say this more explicitly at the end of verse 15, that the peace of Christ is what we are called to in one body. This means that those in Christ are called into one body, the church, and the peace of Christ is how that, how that can even happen. Our reconciliation with God then is the basis for our unity in the body of Christ. It's not just some arbitrary thing we decide to do. It is the basis for which we have been called together as one body, the peace we have with God through Jesus' death on the cross. What this means for us practically is that out of all the competing factors and interests that could be central in our relating to each other in this congregation, which there's, there's many competing factors, there's meeting many competing interests. But brothers and sisters, peace which is the absence of hostility, must be our deciding factor. How we relate to each other must be rooted in peace and reconciliation with each other as we have peace and reconciliation with God through Christ. This is another necessary, absolutely vital, crucial component of a unified, healthy body of Christ, which we have all been called into. Verse 16 continues the, the Christ-centered theme of this section and really the whole letter by saying that the word of Christ must dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another. So the word of Christ is fairly, it's a fairly uncommon phrase in the New Testament, but what Paul is saying with the word of Christ is either the, the message proclaimed by Christ 
or the message that proclaims Christ. In, in either case, this phrase is closely related to the word of God, which reveals both the message proclaimed by Christ and that proclaims Christ. So the scriptures here are what Paul is talking about. And he's saying the, the word of Christ, the scriptures, must dwell in you richly. The idea is that the word must take up a permanent residence in the life of the body. The word must have a home in the church. It must be central to what we do in the body. That word richly means the word, the, the scripture should not just hold a, a ritualistic place, a mundane place in the life of the body. It needs to richly dwell. It needs to be taken seriously with, with reverent awe, with full attention and devotion. Notice then Paul says, we must teach and admonish each other in all wisdom. This is clearly referring to, to teaching the word of Christ, teaching the, the, the Bible to each other. Teaching means positively explaining and applying the text and, and Christian truth to, to others' lives while admonishing here means correcting when there is a wrong interpretation or a wrong teaching. And notice, this is important, Paul isn't just calling elders and pastors to this work. This is a command to the whole body, all of us. We have a responsibility then as being part of the body of Christ to teach and admonish one another. Of course, this doesn't mean that God doesn't call elders to each particular congregation who, who exemplify and, and lead out in the teaching of the word. Of course, he does that. But there is a command that for the word of Christ to dwell in this church richly, we must all teach and admonish each other with the word, with the word of Christ. See, the word must be central in everything we do as a body. When we counsel, when we fellowship with each other, we don't just merely share our opinions or just talk about the latest current events. We must apply the word of God to our fellow brothers and sisters' life. That's the responsibility and privilege of being a member of God's covenant community. And Paul gives an example of how the word can dwell richly in a body at the end of verse 16. So notice he says, singing psalms, in hymns and spiritual songs. The implication from that verse, or from this verse, is that when we sing songs in the body, we are singing to each other in a very real sense. We are, we are teaching and admonishing each other through the songs, through the lyrics we sing. That's why it's vitally important we are careful with what songs we choose to sing. Because through the, through the hymns, the psalms, the, the spiritual songs we choose to sing, we are teaching what the Word of God says. We are teaching and admonishing each other. So praise God 
that, that we have biblically and theologically rich songs being sung here every Sunday, that is not characteristic of many evangelical churches. And it is a blessing that we should pray stays the case. Paul ends both, both verse 15 and 16 with a call to thanksgiving, which is another key fundamental aspect, aspect or attribute for the Christian community. We must be thankful. Thankful for what Christ has done for us. Thankful that we have been made a part of this glorious community of the saints, the church. And in verse 17, Paul concludes this section with a summary statement of sorts, which focuses again on the centrality of the Lord Jesus and our life together as the body. Whatever we do in this congregation, whatever we do, whatever we say, we must do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. This means that all that we do as a congregation must be governed by what it means to live with Christ as Lord. And Paul, in these verses, 12 through 16, he's given us instructions, a blueprint of how we are to interact with each other as the body where Jesus is Lord. So friends, as we close another year and begin a new one, let us take to heart what the Apostle Paul has written here for us. Because I have no doubt, I'm sure you don't either, that in 2022, division will still characterize the world around us. Hostility, hatred of neighbor, it's going to be commonplace. This is what we should expect in our life in the world. But in the body of Christ, In the new covenant community, in the church, it must not be so. Because we're called to peace. As every member of this community confesses Christ as Savior, confesses Christ as Lord, we have experienced the peace of Christ that has brought us into right right relationship with the Father. And that peace we have experienced, that peace that surpasses all understanding, The peace of Christ must reign in each of our lives and our life together at EF. So may God grant us grace. And grow each of us in Christ's likeness. May he grow us with with his compassion and kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. May may we bear with and forgive each other when we are wronged. And may the peace and word of Christ be central to everything we do. Let's pray. Father, we praise you as King and Lord of our lives. And we confess we, we, we need you. We need you to act in our lives so that we can portray Christ to the world and to each other in this body. 
So Lord, would you grant us and, and grant us grace and grow us, each one of us, in Christ-likeness this next year. By whatever means, grow us in compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, gentleness, the patience of Christ. Cause us to grow in these attributes, to love these characteristics, to pursue them, to put them on daily as we live in your body. And Father, as, as challenges continue to, to face us, division becomes more apparent. Father, I pray that you would protect this congregation and unify us. Keep us unified. Cause us to bear with one another, to be in happy fellowship with each other, even when we disagree on important issues. Cause us to forgive each other when we are wronged. Lord, we can only do that by your grace, so we ask you that you would grant that to us today and over the next year. And Lord, may your peace and may your word be central to the life of this body. May we interact with each other, recognizing the reality that we have peace with you through your son's death, so we can have peace with each other. Lord, we love you and we thank you. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen.